You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Genesis 38 verse 1 At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Tira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Terah the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, She took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. 
After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah. Hi everyone. Um my name is Joash. Um, I'm one of the apprentices that works here with the Christian Union. And um, yeah, <laughs> we're going to talk about this. Um, if, you, if, you, if this is your first time here, uh, can I just encourage you, like there is a reason that we're talking about this passage. Um, we're doing a series. We're doing a series on Joseph. And, and we believe that all of Scripture is worth talking about. And we are following the narrative because God saw fit to put this story right here. And so we're going to be talking about it in light of the big picture of what we've been doing this semester, which is Joseph's narrative, Genesis 37 to 50. And of course, last week we were talking about that big question. Um, who, who, is, who is the royal snake crushing seed? And that question arises as we think about the context of Genesis. Do you remember how it all started? God kindly blesses his people. He makes two humans, Adam and Eve, blesses them richly, makes them in his image, and they turn from him, turn away from him, rejecting his rule. And as a result of that, a curse enters the world. And you feel it. We all feel it. Have you touched death? Has it come to you? Have you touched disease, frustration, meaninglessness? all the results of that curse but god promises to make an end to it he he promises to bring forward a a seed a seed of the woman eve who will come and crush god's great enemy the snake we learned a little bit about the seed last week we learned of course that the seed will be uh, one amongst many nations and will be a king a ruler and Now we are thinking about the question, well, who is the seed? Who is the person? I mean, I want to know, don't you? That person is going to make all things right, the hope of renewal for the whole world. And that's how the book of Genesis is structured. Ten generations asking the question, is this the one? Is this person going to bring forth? Is this this man going to bring forth the seed? Will he produce the seed? Is he the kingmaker? Let's look to his children are they the one who are going to make all things right and as we go down the generations they fail again and again and again and we finally get to jacob and his 12 sons and let's place our bets who's it going to be 
At the top of the list at $1.10 is Joseph. He's the great star, the big sheaf, the one whose God has given visions to, apparently. He's the one who's going to rule. Following close after him is Judah, the eldest son of Jacob, who hasn't screwed up yet. Now, I'll get to that in a second. Followed after that, Benjamin, one of Rachel's son, Jacob's lovely wife. Uh, a bunch of mid-tier nobodies. <laughs> and languishing near the bottom, we've got uh, Simeon and Levi, the second and third child, who literally killed an entire town. Yeah, they're not going to be the one, are they? And languishing near the bottom is Reuben, who, of course, if you read the story, super gross, sleeps with his stepmom slash half-mom. Weird. Right at the bottom. And then Gad. Well, why is Gad at the bottom? Well, let me ask you a question. How many Gads do you know? <laughs> like, you guys are Christians. Do you know any Gads? He's clearly not the guy. <laughs> yeah. But, but, we read last week, didn't we? There's a bit of match fixing going on. Joseph, the ringer, the one who's going to win, he gets straight up, well, metaphorically murdered by his brothers. They throw him in a pit, sell him to slavery, and, well, now he's at one to a hundred thousand. He's off in a foreign land. What's he going to do there? He can't be the one. He's a slave. And so, Emdwin, you're right. Why are we talking about this? Well, the question now is not who is Joseph going to be the snake crushing seed? It's who? Who is the royal snake crushing seed? Let's look elsewhere. And we're going to meet two characters in this story, Judah and Tamar. We're thinking about this question. Well, if it's not Joseph, who is it going to be? And this story is going to shed some light on that question. That's a haunting story. It's a haunting story, but it's also a deeply encouraging story. And it's, it's told in four parts. Uh, Tamar's tragedy, the, the, the awful life that Tamar goes through, um, her trickery, her trial, and the twins that she has. And so this story is told in four acts. Let's move to the first one. Um, read with me in verses 1 and 2. At that time, what are we talking about? Well, last week we learned about the fact that Judah, really, leader amongst his brothers, straight up sold Joseph into slavery. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. Judah, the guy who sold his brother into slavery, I don't know, is he racked with guilt or shame? He leaves his family. He leaves them and goes to a land and marries a Canaanite. Judah, what are you doing? There was like one group that the God's people were not supposed to marry and they were the Canaanites. Well, why is that? Why is that? Well, their great ancestor uh, committed a great crime, a great sin against Noah. And he curses Canaan. Isaac tells Jacob and Esau, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And well, Esau goes and does that. Jacob, he sees fit to marry some within the family of God. You do not marry a Canaanite. The Canaanites would be the scourge of the Israeli people for years to come, drawing them into idolatry and prostitution. And that's actually where Judah goes. At the end of the story, he, will, he thinks he slept with a shrine prostitute. Judah, what are you doing? Bam, right at the bottom. Drops down the list. One to 50,000. I mean, he's not a slave, 
but he's gone away from the people of God and married someone he hasn't, he shouldn't. And why is that really important? Because he's compromising the seed. As one of the sons of Jacob, it's his duty really to bring forth the seed, the one who's going to make all things right. That's kind of the big narrative of Genesis where it's all hoping to head. And Judah goes out of his way to screw it up. Well, he, he marries a Canaanite woman um, and she's not named. Her name's not there. And it's very strange for us, I think as Westerners, to kind of think that way. But I think the author is trying to say her, her individual identity is actually less important than her collective identity. She's a Canaanite. This is not supposed to happen. And so he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, right? And enter into the story, Tamar. Now, Tamar marries Judah's first son, Ur, and it does not go well. Ur is so wicked, so wicked, that he's the first person in the Bible, the first person in human history, to be individually struck down by God. Smite. Dead. Now, you'd think, you'd think that given that's the fact, we should know what did he do. But we see a clue, and this is kind of a... Whoop, a kind of clue in how narrative works, there's no information. The author doesn't want us to focus on that. He wants us to focus on what comes next, which is that Tamar, after Ur dies, marries Onan. Now, I just want to talk to that for a second. Why does she marry Onan? Like, what is going on there? And I think it's helpful to understand the context of which this story is found. So this story is written in a time, a long time ago, in a place called the Ancient Near East. And in that time, it was especially hard to be a woman. I think it's very hard to be a woman generally, but particularly there, it's especially hard to be a woman. It is a volatile place. It's a hostile place. And this sort of marriage that goes down to the next brother, is really, it was really an act of mercy. It's an act of justice. And uh, the, the way that it's framed is both related to children. In the first instance, by giving her a child... Um, it allows for her to be cared for in her old age. Um, preferably a son who can do heavy lifting, heavy labor, and protect her from war, provision and protection. That would be super helpful. That's how they thought. That would be a wonderful thing for her to be able to be cared for and not forgotten. And so it was an act of mercy to kind of move down the family and to have a child. And the second thing is legacy. Now, in those days, like you perish quite easily, the thing that carries forward are your children. And that's exactly what we see in the text. Judah tells Onan, give her a child. And it's actually not just for, uh, for uh, Tamar, for, but for the older brother, Ur, a child. And so there's two reasons, these kind of acts of mercy that this kind of marriage goes down. It's a strange thing, but that's what's going on. But if we read what Onan does, we'll get a bit of a clue as to why he screws up. So read with me in verse 8. Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Offspring. Now the word that's there is a good word, you know, it means child. But the word that's kind of like truly there in the original language and which is linking through our series is seed. Give her a seed. Give her a seed. And Onan knows the child will not be his, says he spills his seed on the ground. Do you see what's so wrong about what he does? 
I mean, it's awful what he does just at a, at a surface level, right? Spilling his seed on the ground again and again, denying this woman the justice and mercy she deserves. But he's failing to extend the line of Eve from which the great Redeemer is going to come. The sons of the covenant are really screwing things up, aren't they? Like last week, they just murdered, well, not really, but they, they theoretically murdered a guy, a seed, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the ones, the front runner, who was probably going to be the one to make all things right. And now they're trying a more upstream solution. Let's just prevent the seed from going forward. They are working against God's plan of salvation. Now, without getting too graphic, I really don't want to get too graphic. He keeps spilling his seed on the ground again and again and again. And really, like, what do we say to the guy? Dude, just finish, right? Like, we don't want to get too graphic. But this is the most pleasurable way that he can bring about the seed. Give the woman what she deserves, a child. Just keep going, man. Extend the line of the seed. Bring forward the seed. But he doesn't. And he dies. I mean, I don't even know how that would work. He just straight up dies. Next. And so she is meant to go to Judah's third son, Shelah. And he's a young boy. Now, Judah's probably thinking, like, he's obviously not there during all of that. So he's thinking, this woman is, has got to be cursed, right? My, my two sons are dead. Like, first people to die in the Bible, smite, second one, bam. I don't want this woman in, our, in my life. But it is his right and duty to provide for her. And so what he does is he hatches a very sneaky plan. He says to, he says to Tamar, go and live with your father. And when my young boy, Sheila, grows up, you know, he doesn't know the complexities of married life and what he needs to do, bring forward a seed. When he gets older, you can marry him. And that's where the first act ends. Tragic, tragic life that Tamar's had so far. So we move on to the second act. Tamar's trickery. What's she going to do? Well, years pass. Judah's wife dies. It's very sad. And, but what's more important is that Sheila has not been given to Tamar. He has, now Judah is the one withholding the seed from Tamar. How awful. I mean, he was supposed to keep her in his house, provide for her. That's his duty. He sent her away and now he's not even allowing her to have a child to, to be cared for in that hostile world. And so what does Tamar do? Well, she hatches a pretty sketchy plan, pretty sketchy plan. Um, but even though it's sketchy, Tamar is, is faithful. And I just want to draw that out for a second. She could have bailed on this sucky family, right? Like first husband dies because he's literally the most wicked dude. Second one, awful. Third one, it's been years and your father-in-law doesn't provide for you, but she's faithful to the line of Judah. She decides to procure a seed for herself. And so let's read. What does she do? Read with me in verse 13. Um, Judah's wife has died. He's grieved, I guess, for an appropriate amount of time. And Tamar has told your father-in-law, that's Judah, is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and sat down at the entrance to Unoyim, which was on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had not grown up, so had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. 
when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. And he says he'll give a young goat from his flock. Uh, when I sometimes forget to buy petrol, well, I buy petrol and I don't have my, my card on me, what, what do you do? Like sometimes you give your driver's license. I'll come back. You know who I am. You know where I live. That's kind of what Judah does. It's kind of weird. He's it's like, he trusts this lady, really shouldn't, gives her cord and staff, his personal affairs, his identifying markers, and says, look, I don't carry a goat on my back, but I promise I'll get you one. And he decides to sleep with her. And you may be asking the, uh, the kind of very obvious question, which is like, why is it okay for Judah to do that? Um, it's not. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It's just really implied, isn't it? And, and like, I don't, I don't know how to say this. So like, I think in the words of Taylor Smith, uh, they were young and reckless and they took it way too far. Um, and the thing is, Judah's not even that young. He's kind of old. It's weird. But indeed, they take it way too far. They do. This is not right. And, um, and you know what's weird? She conceives. Like, she has a, she has a child. The, the, the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah is, is carried on in, in, in Tamar. And uh, Judah says, <laughs> super weird, he sends his friend, Hira, to go pay this lady. Um, great, uh, a weird friend. Um, goes to pay, pay her. She's not there. Shock horror. He says, he comes back, they have a discourse, and he says, hey, let's just let it go. Like, it would be so embarrassing if this got out. Let's just, let's just let this one fly. And that's the end of the second act of the story. Tamar's pregnant. And Judah's the dad. And now we get to the third act, which is Tamar's trial. Um, three months later, super exciting, super Tamar's showing, she's got a bit of a baby bump. Congratulations. I guess she's trying to, maybe she's trying to hide it, but it becomes known. It becomes known that she's pregnant. She's supposed to be in the house of her father. She's supposed to be betrothed to Sheila. Whoa, what has gone on? Clearly she's acted in some strange, unwanted liaison. Judah hears about this. And he's angry, he's livid, exasperated, shocked. And look at his incendiary result. Literally, he says, burn her. Come out, let us burn her alive. And I just, I just want to just speak to the watershed of the, the hypocrisy of that statement, like the cruel hypocrisy of it. Look, Judah has lost his wife, but somehow it's okay for him to find some side companionship. But when Tamar, who has lost two husbands seemingly has done the same thing, burn her. Judah just sleeps around for a bit of pleasure. Tamar's doing it to protect herself, to, to give herself provision and protection later in life. Burn her. Judah sleeps what, what he thinks is a shrine prostitute, right? Literally, that person would be having like, sex as, as idolatry to worship some pagan god. That is perverse and sick. That's fine, apparently. But Tamar, who's loyal to the family of Judah, burn her. That is so awful, so cruel and hypocritical. And what's really messed up is Tamar actually has the right to be the matriarch of Judah's family line. That is her right. And she has been denied it. And he now plans 
to burn her. Can you imagine what it'd be like? The, whole, the, the town gets her out. They're ripping her out. They're setting up the pyre. They're getting a wood. There's a guy, I don't know, Flint. They have Flint at that time, a stone. They're trying to get the fire going. And cool as a cucumber, clutch moment, Tamar says, I've got a message. Let's read verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. Great reveal. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Yikes. <laughs> Imagine Judah in the situation. He's humiliated and honestly, he deserves to be. He really does. In fact, he repents. He acknowledges Tamar's superior righteousness. She's pretty sketchy, but he says, she's more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give to her my son, Sheila, he didn't sleep with her again. This act of humiliation, I mean that both in like the, I know it's embarrassing, but also humbling. That's what I mean by that, humiliation, is actually going to kick off Judah's redemptive arc. He kind of sucks, doesn't he? He sounds like a bit of a villain. He just sold off Joseph. He treats this woman really poorly. But Judah, don't, don't forget Judah. Watch him as the story goes. He's going to go from villain to some sort of hero by the end of it. I'll leave that now for a second. And Act 3 ends. Tamar has been vindicated. She's free. She's been seen as a righteous woman. And now we come to the final act. Gives way to this beautiful story. Tamar has twins. Praise God. God has seen her suffering, seen the injustice, and gives her twins. Blesses her with twin boys. Wait a second. Twins. She has twins. Just like Jacob and Esau. You know Jacob and Esau? The twins, the sons of Isaac, who carried the blessing forward, who fought in the womb, who fought their whole life to carry Abraham's blessing forward, to fight to carry the line of the seed. Tamar has twins and they fight too. Esau, which means red, is the firstborn. And Tamar's firstborn is Zerah, meaning scarlet. And his, she has a second son, Perez, who breaks through, just like Jacob breaks through and claims for himself the Abrahamic blessing, claims for himself the line of the seed. And Perez is the father of Hezron, who is the father of Ram, the father of Abinadab, father of Nashon, Salmon, Obed, no, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, great King David. Perez is that seed. He's the special seed. Because David, as you know, fathers, a long way along, the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Perez, wait a minute, Perez is the special one. All right, I'm going to try to do my best sportscaster voice coming out of left field <laughs> at a billion to one. It's the Canaanite, the twice-witted, the woman scorned. It's Tamar. Did you see that coming? <laughs> I didn't see that coming. God has blessed this woman. Now, of course, it is Judah's son. Um, and I, I think we do need to emphasize that because God is not going back on his promise. He's made a promise to Abraham, to Abraham's line. It's not like some random Canaanite has stolen the blessing. It is through Judah. But I mean, he, he's not even at the birth. He doesn't even name 
um, Perez and Sarah. Tamar, you've been blessed. You've been given the special seed. The royal snake crushing seed will come from you. Uh, but I, I think I just have to pause for a second. Like, let's be honest. If we didn't know that fact about the fact that Tamar's son Perez is going to father David, who will father Jesus, like her life kind of sucks. It's quite sad. It's tragic. Like without the fact that we know that it's going to end well, she's left with twins. Judah's kind of like, is he in the picture? We don't even know. And this is what I want to speak to for a second. Now, we've been doing some Old Testament narrative reading tips. Last week, we talked about reading Old Testament narrative, Old Testament narrative, as, as like other narrative. Is, um, is I, I want to just pause for a second and, and draw out why this story is actually beautiful. But to, first, before I do that, I want to tell you about my favorite movie. Um, my favorite movie uh, is, is Spider-Man in, Into the Spider-Verse. Okay. Uh, it tells a story about a young, black, Hispanic American who uh, has to become Spider-Man because his, the Spider-Man in his universe dies. He's a young boy and uh, other spider people from other dimensions come across and they just have it all together. They kind of get it. They know how to do the spider person thing. But he struggles to rise to the responsibility, to the greatness that he needs. And there comes a moment in the, um, in the movie where he needs to take a leap of faith. The others are in trouble. It's time for him to step up. And he needs to follow in the path of Spider-Man. So he goes to a tall building. He jumps off. And music starts to play. It's kind of like rap music, uh, R&B, hip-hop. It kind of encaptures his kind of black, black Hispanic roots. And it's thoroughly Miles. Like, that's the main character. It's, it's him. But as he falls and he's, and he's coming down, at this moment, at this critical moment, he's about to hit the ground, he ascends. And his song diminishes and it's, it's overtaken. It's overtaken by an orchestral fanfare, which through the rest of the movie has represented the Spider-Man, the Spider-Woman. He has become the Spider-Man. His, his, his song is kind of grafted in to the great Spider-Man song. It's still there, it echoes faintly, but it has, he has been overtaken by it. And that's how we need to read uh, Old Testament narrative. We've got to listen to the kind of like what we may call the melodic line of the story, which runs and weaves through uh, different stories. And it's not just the moral of the story. It's kind of like the hope, the emotional tone of it. It, it weaves through stories. I mean, Tamer's story has value. It teaches us about wonderful things about God, but truly only makes sense and is hopeful in light of the fact that we know it leads to Jesus that her, her, her children are going to be involved in bringing about the Messiah. And so that's the thing. With, when they're trying to listen to like what Tamer's song is, we need to recognize that it needs to be grafted in to the kind of grand sweeping symphony that is Jesus as he runs through the Bible. Without it, her song is, is kind of is, is isolated. It's on its own. And here's what's really interesting. Jesus' grand symphony illuminates Tamar's haunting song. Like, think about our life. It's quite tough, right? But we know that Jesus is the royal snake-crushing seed. Jesus is the royal seed. He's the king. By, by nature of his resurrection from the dead, he is above all things, created, invisible, and visible. 
those dead, those alive. He, he's, he's in charge of everything. He's the king. He rules. We know that Jesus is the royal seed and that Tamar is going to bring forth the royal seed. We also know he's the snake crushing king. By virtue of his death on the cross, he defeats the powers of sin. The thing that caused this great mess. It doesn't have teeth anymore. God's people are free from the, the power of sin and death. He overcomes death in his resurrection. God's people don't have to fear that anymore. And Satan, the great enemy of God's people, has been destroyed. He has no power over God's people anymore. Jesus' grand symphony makes sense of Tamar's story. It makes us look at it in a new light with hope and joy, which we may not have seen before. But we may say, wow, God, you, you have blessed Tamar. She's not just vindicated, she's blessed. But you know what's even crazier? God sees fit to let Tamar's story contribute to Jesus' grand symphony. And this, this is something important. When you're reading the story of Jesus and you start with the Gospel of Matthew and you open up to the genealogy, I hope you don't skip it, and you see Tamar's name, you should be listening and hearing that melodic line play, remembering that's Tamar, it's God. Right? Tamar reminds us that in Jesus, um, God is able to see forward his plan of salvation. Despite rampant opposition, despite things and betrayal that seem to take away from God's plan, we remember what Tamar did and that fact that God saw her and provided for her. In that same way, when we read about Jesus, we recognize like he's the one who does that. And, and honestly, he's the one who truly provides, uh, provides restoration for, for broken, rejected people. And I think that this kind of thing is really important because whenever we read Old Testament narrative, here's a, here's a critical thing. We have to graft it in to Jesus' story. That means when we do biblical theology, it has to come in some way. It has to show us how it's going to point to Christ. It's just, it's just by nature of how, how the Bible is set up. And so I'm encouraging you as you're reading the Bible in your triplets this semester to be thinking, how does, this, how does this weave into Jesus' story? How does Jesus' story make sense of what we're reading? Now, what's really crazy and awesome is that the melodic line that we hear in Tamar is not just isolated to this story and even to Jesus. It runs through to Jesus, but it, it runs through the whole Joseph narrative. That's why we're talking about it today. What's the, what's the kind of line? What's, what, what, what do we learn about Tamar's story? Well, God, in his power, in his faithfulness, subverts the wickedness of the sons of the covenant who fail to extend the light and seed and abuse this poor woman Tamar in the process. He subverts. He sees his plan come through. And Tamar's story is kind of like a paradigm of the whole Joseph story. It's here for a reason. Last week, Joseph got, well, he kind of cocked it, didn't he? And we're wondering like, well, well how is God going to keep his, his kind of vision to Joseph alive? How is he going to make sure that they're all bound down to him at the end, that he's going to be ruling over the nations? Well, we sing a song of Tamar, don't we? We remember that God can subvert the plans that people have because his brothers, the sons of the covenant, fail to extend the line of sea. They're trying to kill him off. They abuse their family in the process. How will God procure his chosen one, his royal seed? We listen to what Tamar has to say. Her story is paradigmatic of the entire Joseph story. And that's why it's here. That's why it's here. We're about to end today. I just, I just want to, how do we reflect on this as Christians? 
I've been thinking about that this week. I think I've, the thing I've been thinking about is, like, often I think we talk about God's sovereignty. Like, we can take that, you know, he subverts. He's able to see his plan come through. And sometimes we think of it like a, kind of like a, a theological fact we just chuck in our back pocket. But this narrative just doesn't allow us to do that, does it? Like, t- this story takes place over years, possibly decades. And we see what it's like for someone to faithfully respond to God's promises, to kind of hold on to it in this crazy world. The fact that God can see his plans come through. And I think when we think about the sovereignty of God, we can kind of just say that as a fact. But I think we can take heart that as Christians who go through life and it takes time, that we have to remember it not as just some fact, but like live it out in our choices, live it out joyfully and have confidence and assurance that yeah, truly God, God will see his plan of salvation come to pass. Like, I think it was last year we talked about Romans. We talked about like the great things that seem to oppose God's people's death, sickness, persecution. He will see it come through. And we, we can read those verses and we go, yep, that's true. But Tamer's story shows how that comes out in a lifetime. Give thanks to God. Give thanks to your God. He will see his plan of salvation come through. There's nothing that can stop that. He is powerful. He is faithful. And he even works against his own people who are fighting against him. What a wonderful and gracious God we have. Uh, I might pray as we end. We thank God for his, his kindness. Um, yeah, mighty God. Um, so we think about this strange story t- today. We, we thank you that we have seen the light of life. We've seen Christ come. We can understand Tamar's story in light of that. And we thank you that you're a God who sees your plan to to its end and that we can have confidence as Christians that in spite of betrayal or hurt or people working against what's seemingly working against you, that you you are powerful and wonderful and kind and you see things to the end. And help us, God. Help us to trust, to have joy and to endure um, the trials of this life. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.